The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Umbrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited. Chemicals can make their way into our watercourses when sprayed in the wrong conditions. But how do you know when the conditions are right? We'll hear about a smart solution. It gives the farmer an automated recommendation for the next seven days. Is it safe to spray or not? Open Farm Sunday 2023 is only a month away. We'll get all you need to know with Ambassador Andy Guy. And Britain's fittest farmer is coming to Lincolnshire. The perfect matchup, Lincolnshire show and Britain's fittest farmer. It's an exciting time. And we have the crops, markets and prices and some important agronomy advice. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, yet another wet week then. It is looking a little bit better after today, the forecast at the end of the programme. If you've oilseed rape in the fields, when's the right time to spray herbicides? How do you decide when factors such as the weather, the soil and the method you use to plant all have an impact? Agrimetrics, working with BASF, have a smart solution. Chief Commercial Officer for Agrimetrics, Rebecca Geraghty. Firstly, what's the problem you've been trying to solve? So we were approached by BASF, who wanted to help their farmers responsibly use their oilseed rape herbicides, because when they're sprayed in the wrong conditions, so the wrong weather combined with soil type, there's a risk that those oilseed rape herbicides can end up leaching into watercourses. OK, and between the two of you, you've come up with a smart solution. What is it? The solution that BSF wanted was an easy to use tool for farmers to know when is it safe to spray? When is it responsible to spray? And also that it made business sense as well. So it brings together a whole range of different data sets, data from DEFRA, from the Met Office, from the Environment Agency. It uses our field boundaries. And then it needs just two pieces of information from the farmer. Is the field drained? And what kind of tillage practice do they have? And you combine all that data together and it looks at the future forecast weather and it gives the farmer an automated recommendation for the next seven days. Is it safe to spray or not? And as well as doing that, it also gives the farmer a record to show responsible use. And is it doing that on a farm basis or on a field basis? How accurate are we? Yeah, it's done field by field. And it's a really good question because actually we need to make sure that the data and the recommendations are local and relevant to the farm and to the field because we know that a farm can be spread geographically. So it's important that we do that field by field because actually some of the data will change. Is the field drained? What kind of tillage practice was used, for example? I mean, it must be an awful lot of data. That's what Agrimetrics is all about and making people's life easier, making decisions easier by finding data, by bringing together data and by linking data that actually otherwise to do that as an individual farmer or as a business in the supply chain is really difficult to do. So where is that data and how can I link it all together? And actually, that's what BASF wanted us to do, is to make it really simple and easy to use, pulling all that data together and then linking it to the specific field. And is that done on a desktop computer? Is there an app? How does it work in terms of the farmer actually using it? There's an application. There's a web page as well. So it's accessible if you're in the field through a smartphone or a, a tablet, or if you're in the farm office, you can access it as well. And, and that's the point. It's also making it easy to use, but also accessible uh, wherever the farmer is. And there will be a cost to the farmer, presumably, for using this system. 
no, it's free to use. Um, it's been paid for. BSF wanted to make this available because they also want to, I guess, be able to help their farmers make uh, responsible decisions. I think the other thing to say is for the farm, it's also about being as efficient as possible. So how can we help save money while also ensuring responsible use? Rebecca, thank you very much for that. Thanks, Steve. For more information, head to the Agrometrics website or search when to go. That's a number two and a zero at the end. Lincolnshire's fittest agronomist, Sean Sparling, has some important advice for us in a minute. But first, Britain's fittest farmer is coming to the Lincolnshire show this year. One of the judges is friend of the farming programme, Charles Anion. First, Farmers Weekly editor, Andrew Meredith. Is it meant to be serious or just a bit of fun? Britain's fittest farmer is absolutely a combination of serious and fun. You know, we set it up in 2018 for it to be a way of bringing farmers together in a really relaxed atmosphere for them to meet like-minded folk who are both into their farming and into their fitness. But it is a way for us to talk about some of the mental health issues that many farmers are facing at the moment. So that is the serious side. And, you know, I've been to a few of these now and the atmosphere at them is always incredible. It's a competition. People there really want to win, but they are so supportive of one another along the way that it just feels like a brilliant day out. What have entrants actually got to do to become Britain's fittest farmer? Firstly, to say they can read all about the details and apply to be a part of it at fwi.co.uk forward slash BFF. But essentially, the format of the competition is you'll come along to one of the qualifiers, do a series of physical challenges that are not unlike the circuits classes that many folk will have done at the gym, various sort of strength and stamina based exercises. And then if you get through the qualifying round, There will be a final uh, later in the year at the home of Tom Kemp, the Essex farmer who is uh, so well known in the fitness world. He's got his own on-farm gym and he's made a brilliant farm diversification out of doing a lot of this. Him and his team are the professionals that support us to deliver this and make sure that the competition is run fairly but also uh, run safely too. It's open to men, it's open to women, it's open to older people, even my age. (laughs) That's right. We've got uh, a men's category, a women's category and an an over 40s category. Uh, We do get some very athletic folk along to compete in this, but I really want to make clear that all sorts of folk at every sort of fitness stage come along. It's very much an event that I'm keen to see people of all shapes and sizes come along and meet one another. And turning to Charles Anion, particularly good news that one of the qualifiers this year is taking place at the Lincolnshire Show. Absolutely. You know, it's really exciting that it's coming to the Lincolnshire Show and, you know, it'll be a great showcase for farming. You know, the perfect matchup, Lincolnshire Show and Britain's fittest farmer. It's exciting times. And you are going to be a judge this year. I know. How, how, how bizarre is that? Uh, I don't know. With you, the way your health has been over the last few years and your change of weight and so on feels most exactly. appropriate to me. No, it's it's a real honour to have been asked to be a judge of Britain's Fittest Farmer. And obviously, a lot of that is due to my um, ambassadorship of the Farming Community Network, who were a partner of the event. But no, I'm really excited to uh, get stuck in. Because your story, as uh, many will know listening to the Farming Programme, because we've spoken about it before, involves quite a substantial weight loss and getting yourself fit through running, doesn't it? I've lost five stone now and um, it's lovely to be able to combine my love of running with with promoting mental health. And yeah, um, you do this to raise funds for Farming Community Network, but obviously you enjoy it as well. 
Oh, absolutely. And uh, as you say, I, I, I do raise funds for the Farming Community Network, who are an excellent charity, who um, you know promote many things, especially mental health, and work very closely with, with our very own Lincolnshire Rural Support Network here in the county. All right, Charles, good luck with your judging, at least at the Lincolnshire Show Heat. You can sit back and watch others go through their paces. Have a great time. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Steve. And back to you, Andrew Meredith. Just remind us of where we can go for more information about Britain's Fittest Farmer. So just go along to fwi.co.uk forward slash BFF. Lovely. Andrew, thank you very much. Let's hope it's another very successful Britain's Fittest Farmer. Thank you. Time for a walk through the rather wet fields with crop doctor Sean Sparling. Morning, Sean. Yes, morning, Steve. Deja vu, isn't it? Two dry days for me once again in the last seven, and I believe I got off lightly. I've been hearing reports of over 90 mil of rain south of Laos last weekend, but with somewhere between 20 and 30 mil pretty widespread across the county, it just doesn't seem to get any better. There has been some spraying done over this last week, of course, mostly from the early hours of the morning until around lunchtime, because the afternoons have been pretty much a write-off with the thunderstorms we've seen pretty much every day since last Sunday's programme. And as with all thunderstorms in general, both the precipitation and the quantity of that precipitation varies wildly from village to village and even from field to field on the same farm. Hailstones the size of Marafat peas, 20 millimetres of rain within 10 minutes or so on one of my farms. Some of those storms have caused serious but quite localised damage. Not just my sugar beet, I shouldn't think, that's got washed clean out of the field in a place or two. Starting with sugar beat then. The beat's absolutely romping away across the county, through the ground within seven days of drilling and beyond cotyledoned into first true leaves within three weeks of drilling. Of course, the downside of this wet spell in this ever-warming soil, which have increased by four degrees since this time last week, is that the weeds are motoring and emerging at a similarly rapid pace. That's particularly pertinent where no pre-em herbicide got applied to the sugar beet for whatever reason, whether by choice or due to a lack of suitable spraying conditions. So clearly the fields which have no residual already laid down are of concern in these conditions and should take priority. But as with any season, it all depends where you can travel and where you go and spray. You know, there will inevitably be fields out there, and I have a few of them myself, which are now reminiscent of those David Attenborough documentaries where it rains in the desert for the first time in months and they flush with flowers from one side to the other within 24 hours. The only difference here is that we're not flushing with beautiful flowers, it's flush after flush after flush of weeds, particularly the polygonums and the dicots. And of course the definition of a weed is a plant that's in the wrong place. Of course, also, we still do have a few tools in the armoury when it comes to broadleaf weed control in beet, so all is not yet lost. Clearly not as many as we need because we've lost important actives like desmedifam and chloridazon, which made the job a lot easier. To get successful weed control in sugar beet, much of it depends upon three things. Firstly, the size of the weed. Small weeds are much easier to control and much more reliably controlled at the cotyledon to small plant stage. So once weeds such as knotgrass, black bindweed, ivy leaf speedwell, pale per- area. Once they stick that first true leaf out, they become much harder to kill. Secondly, the size of the sugar beet itself 
yourself. And that's going to govern the rate and the combinations of the products that you use. In other words, how daring you are with the dose rates and the tank mixes of these products. And thirdly, the weather conditions that prevail when you need to go spraying. Because the nature of sugar beet weed control is built around low dose, low volume application, low dose of product, low volume of water. Therefore, we know that fine quality sprays are going to give us by far the best chance of a good result on these weeds. We also know that air induction nozzles and bubble jets are never a good idea when it comes to applying sugar beet herbicide. So make sure that you know the growth stage of your sugar beet and therefore how heavy handed you can be with the addition of mineral oils and higher doses of products to enhance the effects of the brew on the weeds when the opportunity does finally arise to go spraying in the beet field. The strength and content of any tank mix needs to be tailored to the beet growth stage and the conditions that you're spraying in. With a fine quality spray, we do need the wind to be low, of course. So making the most of the right conditions by prioritising the worst fields is the key. Just watch the intervals, though, between applications. Read the label. The interval restrictions are there to protect the sugar beet from damage. I'm finding a few winged Mises persica aphids about now, the odd nymph out there too, although nowhere near threshold of one wingless nymph per four plants and this heavy rain and hail is going to be battering those aphids and upsetting their plans but if you've got non-dressed beet do stay alert and keep your eyes open beet dressed with cruiser should be covered for about eight to ten weeks from the date of emergence depending on conditions i'm finding pygmy beetle damage fairly widespread slug activity quite noticeable as well particularly on the heavier land and the non-inversion systems after cover crops plenty of skylark damage out there too which this warmer weather is going to let the small plants grow away from that quickly and also finding flea beetle <laughs> everything's at the sugar beet this year oilseed rape now much higher risk of sclerotinia it's been a bit too cold up until the last 10 days or so for sclerotinia but now that protectant fungicide is becoming far more important coating the petals with a layer of protectant fungicide to stop the grey moulds and the botrytis from setting in when they fall and stick to the stem azoxystrobin boscolid prothiaconazole bixofen all very good options and they'll protect the canopy for around three weeks so with most rape crops well beyond 20 pods set now that should take them through for the rest of the season winter wheats are shifting as well as i said last week there will be plenty of fields where the correct timing for t1 has been missed thanks to the weather this spring so leaf three may well have active septoria on it and that means that the t2 fungicide is going to be need to be applied as well as you possibly can to ensure that the flag leaf is well protected from any latent disease within the canopy and those flag leaves are already showing in many fields now 75% flag leaf emerged of course the general growth stage 37 timing but do judge each field individually the time it takes for the flag leaf to emerge of course is going to depend upon the weather and the temperatures over the coming days but I reckon most of mine will get its t2 fungicide over the course of the next seven to ten days and do adjust the dose according to variety and disease pressure this season and remember that saving a few quid by dropping the rate may be the falsest of false economies this season think about what's coming as well as what's already been it's a long time until harvest yet you know wheat gets 95 percent of its yield from the ear the flag leaf leaf two and leaf three so those are the bits that you need to keep clean and free from disease so lowering the dose to fit a budget is not the best idea winter barley is well into ear emergence now so the t2 is going on widely the awns are an important part of the process in barley in the photosynthesis process so do focus on protecting them and the upper canopy and it's largely too late now for most gross regulators in winter barley so make sure you check the label if you've still got some to apply spring barley that was drilled earlyish now getting its t1 and late tillering growth stage 30 widespread 
which is the T1 timing. The later stuff, like the stuff that went in last week, are way off that yet, but the speed of growth will be absolutely dramatic in those later drillings, so do make sure there's plenty of nitrogen there for them. Manganese, magnesium deficiencies, widespread, easy to find, particularly on the lighter soil, so do be ahead of that manganese problem. If you can see deficiency, you're already a bit too late, so do know your field. And of course, 15th of May tomorrow, the deadline for submitting BPS applications and annual stewardship claims without penalty being applied is imminent and 2023 is the final year that entitlements are going to be activated using eligible land because 2024 we see the start of D-Link BPS payments where your payments are based upon your 2020, 2021 and 2022 claims. So let's hope they know what they're doing because they didn't know what they were doing when we were doing all the work for them. Happy days then. Heard the cuckoo on Wednesday so if you're still thinking of sticking barley in you're probably too late now. Let's pray for sunshine and dry weather. Let's see what the next seven days bring. Thank you, Sean. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate, Grantham. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts. It's nearly time for another Open Farm Sunday. East Midlands Ambassador Andy Guy joins us today. Andy, this is a great opportunity for farmers to engage with the public. And if a farmer's never been involved before... Why should they this year? Oh, you know, Steve, I think there's so many reasons why farmers can do it. For many, it's a really useful way, as you said, to engage with the public and the community around them. And that might be for all sorts of reasons. It might be simply because it's a good thing to do. And farming outside of Europe and post-COVID and with inflation and things, it's really important to get the messages across to the people that eat our food, how we produce it and how safe it is and all of that sort of thing. For some, it's a way of making connections with the people that live nearby, maybe the people that walk dogs on their footpaths or visit the countryside. For some, they've got a, a business which will benefit from it, perhaps as a farm shop or some sort of diversification on the farm. There's so many reasons, but the biggest reason probably is actually it's just a good fun day. And it does give the opportunity, apart from engaging with the public, to maybe dispel some myths. We could talk sustainability, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important one. And farming is a big part of the solution for the UK with regards to carbon footprints and safe food and food miles and so many important things that are going to become more and more important as we try to save the planet, I suppose, is the, is the reality of it. Now, these events don't have to be great big things, do they? I've spoken to farmers over the years who've said, I'm a little bit nervous about this, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in public speaking and I, don't, I haven't got room for hundreds of people. It doesn't have to be any particular size or scale, does it? No, I've got lots of farmers that open them and just welcome maybe 20 people or 25 people. And in fact, there's a free ticketing service that LEAF provides, which means that actually if you're, if you're really concerned about it, you could issue tickets so that you only get exactly the people that you want. So numbers is no reason to be afraid. The type of event can really be fairly flexible as well. You know, anything from a, a little walk to a big presentation. Exactly. You can have, a, as you say, a little walk or a tractor and trailer ride around the farm. You can have a, almost a village show if you want to, or a fete. You don't have to show your whole farm off, and you can talk about just one thing if you want to. Just tell your story and talk about your passion. What are the essentials that a farm opening on Open Farm Sunday needs to consider? Well, the really critical thing, I suppose, is health and safety. LEAF have got a template which will help deal with health and safety risk assessments and things. It's really quite straightforward. If you've never done one before, it's not a difficult process. The next one, I guess, is publicity, and that's the way that you will control how many people come. Then the next one is just what are you going to show them? Uh, what's your story on your farm and what are you going to talk about? Uh, and I think once you've got those things nailed, 
the rest of it will quickly drop into place. There is an excellent info pack on your website. Lots and lots of information there. Pretty much everything you need to know is on the website, isn't it? It is, but if you've got any other questions that you want to ask, then I'm here as well. I'm the local Open France Sunday ambassador, and my details are on there too. So you can give me a ring uh, or, or an email or something, and I'm very happy to offer any advice or just talk through what you want to do and perhaps what you're thinking about. Remind us of the date again, Andy, and where we can go for all this information. So we're Sunday the 11th of June. The Leaf Open Farm Sunday website is called farmsunday.org. And my name's Andy Guy, and my details are on there, and I really do welcome a call. Lovely, Andy. Fingers crossed we have uh, some decent weather for the day and, uh, and loads and loads of people visiting farms. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Steve. Links FM Farming. Market reports. Starting with livestock and from Louth, good morning, auctioneer Oliver Chapman. Morning, Steve. Another weekly roundup from here in Louth on what was the Coronation Bank holiday weekend. Tremendous trade across the board, all sections dearer. Prime cattle, heifers to 291 pence per kilo and 1,830 pounds for JNS Brooks of Strubby. Steers to 278 pence per kilo or 1,581 pounds. Onto the cool cows, a top at 213 pence per kilo and 1,636 pounds for SG Danby and Sons. Onto the sheep, triple the number of lambs, similar trade with an all-in average of 343.7 pence per kilo. To top for Shaw Brothers at Binbrook at £157.50 or 375 pence per kilo. Onto the hogs, more than expected and an SQQ of 302 pence per kilo and an all-in average of 301.91 pence per kilo. With H. Smith and Sons of Theddlethorpe taking the top honours at £175 per head or 367 pence per kilo for a 43 kilo hog. Onto the cool ewes, slightly more on offer and a tremendous trade leaves an all-in average of £145.24 for the ewes and a £184 average for the cool rams. Use top at £228 per head for H. Smith & Sons of Theddlethorpe, while the Rams top at £220 per head for Zorbles from F. Dennis of Tattershall. On to the store sheep. Handful of store hogs top for our jeans of Covenham at £94 per head, while this week saw a show and sale of ewe and lamb outfits very kindly sponsored by Belmont Seeds and GFP and the ewe and lamb outfits placed by Mr. James Holmes of Apley. Topping at £180 per life for a single Beltex ewe suckling a Charolais bred lamb from Emily Scaman of Saleby. And the ewe and lamb outfits all in average £101.18. A tremendous day across the board in all sections on a week where many more cattle and sheep could have been sold to vendors' advantage. Tomorrow we're back on with store cattle, prime and cool cattle and all classes of sheep. So for all entries, please do not hesitate to contact me. This is Oliver Chapman from Asins and Mouth Market and thank you. And to the grain market with Open Fields' Alice Killam. Morning, Alice. Good morning, Steve. After finishing last week with some green numbers, on the back of the funds quietly trying to buy back some positions, we have sadly now lost this momentum. There have been a few reasons for this fall, led once again by the US. The weekly export numbers continued to be poor and were shortly followed by China cancelling another 272,000 tonnes of US corn. Exports are at 77%, behind the 21-22 marketing year. 12 months ago, the US had completed 92% of exports. This indicates that there are nearly 11 million tonnes left to ship. Things can change quickly, though. The bears are also looking at the US crop progress highlights. Released Monday, you can see that the US farmers had a busy week planting the row crops at pace. Both are well above the five-year average, and this is a reason to push the markets lower. The bulls are, of course, going to focus on the wheat conditions getting worse, not better. 
On the topic of funds, the latest data won't be released for a couple of days, but it is well rumoured that the shorts built up in both Chicago wheat and Chicago corn will have been trimmed in recent days. Indeed, this was probably what helped the rally at the end of last week. When official data is released, it will be interesting to see if the sell button has been once again pushed this week. The slightly staggering bit to most in the trade, though, is that the market is continuing to ignore, almost in its entirety, the heightening tensions in Ukraine. You'll have seen pictures of the Victory Day parade in Moscow this week in the main news headlines. Celebrations, it was reported, were more muted than in previous years, but the words used by President Putin did not strike a conciliatory tone in any way. The Grain Corridor conversations, which reached stalemate at the end of last week, continued this week in Istanbul. Movements of vessels are slowing, with Ukraine suggesting there are 62 boats waiting to get in to be loaded. The obvious counter-argument to this is that even if a deal is not struck, most of the grains have already left Ukraine. Russia is continuing to dominate any third-party tender, and so even if nobody can agree on future terms, it won't make that much physical difference to the world market. I'm not so convinced by this. Any no deal will be symbolic, and those 62 vessels will then be moving elsewhere to collect product in order to ship. Would the European market not be an obvious alternative? Domestically, it feels like we're stuck. Without any real consumer demand, we are relying on export bids. On good days, the market has tried its hardest to claw its way back to 190 delivered on old crop and 200 delivered on new crop pre-Christmas. But any hint of a slightly stronger pound or a slight drop in other outside markets, many of which actually has very little to do with us, and we fall away very quickly. Our market, for the moment at least, has very little resilience. We can mess around with harvest dates a little to create a larger old crop window in which to trade, but I wonder if we're now done for the season. We're going to need to see quite a change of gear in the NOV23 market to kickstart the old crop market again. Unless we see a big uptick in demand, I fear that we're stuck. Rapeseed, having gained on Tuesday and Wednesday, has had another torrid day, following crude oil and soybeans down again on Thursday. We're running out of time here too. Guide prices for this week, circa Friday morning. Feed wheat, June 170 to 180. July 175 to 185. September 170 to 180. November 180 to 190. Feed barley, May 160 to 170. July 155 to 165. September 155 to 165. All seed rape, circa 345 to 355. That's all for another week. As usual, please call for firm values as the level of volatility seen is changing prices hourly. Thanks to Alice and Oliver. Back with the market reports, same time next week. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. After a wet start, things stay mostly dry but cool from Tuesday as the pressure picks up. Plenty of rain for today and Monday. Light northerlies and highs in the mid-teens today, dropping to around 10 Celsius tomorrow. The wind stays mostly from the north midweek. Brisk on Tuesday but easing. Dry with highs staying around 10 or 11. Calming and warmer towards the end of the week but some light rains expected. Good luck to everyone taking part in the Louth Lions Charity Vintage Tractor Run today. We're back same time next Sunday or whenever you like, online, app, podcast or smart speaker. I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, have a great week. The Farming Programme with our equipped steel stockholders with Unbroke Industrial Estate Grantham. Supplying the region for over 40 years.